Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got an award-winning multiple author with me, Thomas Zweifel. Thomas, welcome to the Grow CFO show. Thank you so much, Kevin. Pleasure to be here. Thomas, tell me something about you and the books that you've written. Okay, well, the books that I've written are usually based on all the mistakes that I've made so that my clients don't have to make the mistakes anymore. Oh, brilliant. I like uh, that. I like the <laughs> idea of, and I've heard a very good motto that says, fail fast, fail frequently, and fail forwards. Yes, that's exactly the bottom line. For example, the book Culture Clash, I wrote because I made so many mistakes by living in other cultures like India and Japan and the US. I was teaching at Columbia. I was living in Tokyo. I was living in London. I'm sure I made a lot of mistakes in London. (laughs) It's not an easy culture to be with. And so I put all those sins into the books so that I could prevent other people. I built a consulting company called Swiss Consulting Group, which I've sold about 10 years ago. And I was able to basically have my clients benefit from my mistakes. And not only worst practices, of course, but also best practices. Because as a consultant, you can pull together from different fields and different industries, the best lessons or best practices, and then hopefully they will cross-fertilize and innovate the thinking of the client. One of the books is Strategy and Action, where we may actually come back to this, where I discovered this approach in India, actually. I was living in Bombay at the time, now Mumbai. And again, I was working with the Indian Planning Commission on their five-year plan to basically integrate ending hunger into that plan. And again, I made so many mistakes there that out of it came a very powerful approach called Strategy and Action, which is a seven-step methodology that allows you to basically plan from the future, but out of the action rather than out of the desk or out of the research or planning. I'd love to come back to that one, Thomas. At the moment, as we record this, we're kicking off a quest in GrowCFO that is all about executing strategy, not the how do you formulate the strategy, not the how do you get to this strategy document. But once you've got there, how on earth do you turn this into something that gets implemented? So yeah, exactly. I can explore that. But I know that your last book was Gorilla in the Cockpit. Tell yes. me about that one. It's probably a, a little bit of a crazy title. My co-author, Vip Vyas, who's also Indian, by the way, by descent, he came up with this idea, Gorilla in the po- Cockpit, because so many times, those of us who are in a leadership role, whether we're a CFO or a CEO or on the board of the board or a CIO, we're in the hot seat, right? The image of the gorilla in the cockpit going, ah, you know, I have it coming at me from all sides. I have demands from shareholders. I have demands from the regulators. I got demands from the media. I got demands from the workforce. So to be in that hot seat can feel like being a gorilla in the cockpit where you basically don't know what's up and down anymore. And you still have to steer the plane to the destination. So we came up with this whole idea of a flight path where you basically go from A to B, how do you steer the plane from A to B without crashing? And some people may know this already. We discovered that actually over 90% of projects fail 
and I'm talking about any project. It could be a big infrastructure project. It could be a finance transformation project. It could be an IT project, digitizing the business. It could be as small as your home renovation. It could be a personal project. 91%, according to Ben Fluvier, who's a project management expert in Denmark, he found this in his latest book. 91% of projects fail and crash. And we ask ourselves, why? What is it that people have these great plans and they want to execute and then something goes wrong? And we discovered that it's not financial reasons, it's not operational, it's not strategic, that ultimately it's really a human failure and it's basically here. We discovered that at the very outset, when you set the governance of the project or when you create the concept or when you create the business case, much before the execution, even when you do procurement, et cetera, in those phases, you have a kind of a mindset or a, a bias, a set of biases that actually get you off on the wrong foot. And then the execution and the results are very clear, kind of a logical consequence because you then go over budget, you go over time. You have budget creep. The most famous example, perhaps, is the Berlin airport, where they went, I think, 10 years over the timeline, and they spent, I think, $3 billion more than they had in mind. And the whole governments fell over this, and passengers are unhappy, airlines are unhappy. So it's a major disaster. And we discovered that it's really the bias at the very beginning that gets you in the wrong direction. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I can think of UK projects that are similar. And uh, the famous yeah. UK scandal was the cost of the uh, Scottish Parliament building. It's, uh, exactly. Um, which, by the way, which is one case in our book, by the way, the Scottish yeah. Parliament building. It's so funny that you're mentioning this. Maybe I can look it up a little bit later, or maybe we can even give that chapter to people, or they can read it if they get the book. But I'm thinking as well, Thomas, of my time back in PwC consulting, I became part of a team that was looking specifically at a benefits realization methodology, because we were picking up reports coming out of Gartner. We're talking mainly implementing ERP systems here, SAP, Oracle, and so on, where the yep. stats were saying something very similar, that an incredibly high percentage of these big ERP implementations never realized the benefits that they claimed in the first place might have technically worked as systems, but what is success? I mean, success should be delivering the things you said you were going to deliver, which was X saving, Y reduction in employees, Z growth in the business, whatever those things might be around the business benefit of doing the project. The project just technically working isn't success. That's exactly right. And then you have these different biases. And we learned this from Daniel Kahneman, for example. I mean, Kahneman, who was the first non-economist to win the economics Nobel Prize, namely Kahneman was a psychologist. He was not an economist, but he created this whole field called behavioral economics, where you see that, I'll give you just one example of a bias, confirmation bias, where your brain will basically only accept the evidence that you already believed prior, right? We're not doing this sometimes. It's not something that we can correct. It's something that we do all the time. That's how we get through life, because you have 11 billion sensory inputs every second in your brain, and the brain must select, because otherwise you go crazy. That's the definition of neurosis when you can no longer select what's important, what's relevant, and what's irrelevant information. 
but the downside of this confirmation bias where you only confirm existing beliefs, not to speak of Facebook and social networks that will then only also confirm your prior beliefs also. So you never really learn anything new. Even if you didn't have confirmation bias, you still have other biases like the planning fallacy, for example, which is a sort of optimism bias where you do not confront what it's going to take to execute something. You basically make plans and it all sounds really wonderful in the planning phase and you say it's all going to be great and it's going to cost this much. Here's the budget and here's the procurement plan, etc. And then you didn't confront what it's going to take. So many plans actually fail because of planning fallacy. Yeah. So these are just two examples of of bias here. Coming out of projects like the Scottish government that we just mentioned, if you write a business case for the public sector in the UK, they've got some very strict rules. Firstly, they follow what they call the five case model. But then when you're calculating the economic case, costs versus benefits, they actually prescribe you to use something called an optimism bias calculation and gives you a whole list of factors to consider. And depending on how those factors are scored, it will say, well, you now increase your costs, whatever your cost estimate is, by 5%, 10%, whatever. And there'll be similar things that take your benefits number and decrease your benefits number by a percentage or whatever. Now, once you've applied optimism bias, does the project still make sense? (laughs) Yeah, my view of this, this is a step in the right direction to have those kinds of, what should I call it, kind of contingency. So you have a contingency both on the performance and on the cost level, but that doesn't get at the real problem in my view. The real problem is, I'm going to make a metaphor to explain this, okay? I don't know if you have a bottle on your table, on your desk somewhere. Yeah. But if you just picture a bottle, and my question is, if you fill the bottle with water, what's the shape of the water? The shape of the bottle. It's the shape of the bottle. If I put in oil, it's still the shape of the bottle. If I put in sand, it's still the shape of the bottle, right? So no matter what content I put in, it's always going to be the shape of the bottle. And the bottle in the case of a company is basically the background conversations, the set of unexamined beliefs about the company, about the market, about the business that are invisibly guiding or driving the company without anybody really noticing it anymore. I'll give you an example from one of the biggest aircraft and satellite manufacturers in the world. It's a European company. I guess you can imagine which one. And we worked with them on what's the bottle in your company. And after about a day or several hours, we discovered it's basically the background conversation is our best days are behind us. Okay. Now, it's not that anybody thought about this consciously or went to work every single day and said, oh, our best days are already behind us. But somehow subconsciously, everything that came their way, every content, whether it was a new CEO whether they brought in consultants or not, whether they had a change initiative, it didn't matter. Whatever the content was, it was all through this filter called our best days are already behind us. So yeah, this we tried already. It's not going to work. I already know, et cetera. So if you have- there, There you've got something that is endemic in a lot of organizations. Yes. I remember being involved in a local charity. I was one of the trustees. And we needed to effectively revitalize it. And there were a certain group of other trustees that had been there for years that literally everything we suggested, oh, 
you tried that before it didn't work yes exactly and that's the job you've got to find what's the background conversation that drives you through life and no matter what you do on the content level no matter what you put into the bottle as long as you have not examined what the bottle is that you're a prisoner of the bottle will keep driving you and unfortunately you cannot break the bottle people ask me can we just break this bottle and create a new one yeah. no it's not possible because the bottle is basically a result of all the interactions all the cultural decisions all that we will never do x again decisions in the past so it's a product of history so you cannot break the bottle but what you can do is you can be aware of it and the moment you become aware of it and i could give you lots of examples of different companies law firms and construction companies and manufacturers and all and banks and we did this with all of them and it's it's really fascinating the moment you discover what it is what's that invisible driver what's the bottle the moment you have that you then have it rather than it has you so the transformation is not to get rid of the bottle because you can't the transformation is to discover what it is and then you have it rather than it has you yeah now we talked briefly on the book that you'd written around executing strategy that bottle analogy must be the same when it comes to strategy Yes, exactly you're, right. You're trapped by that culture. And having the right culture must form a big part of managing to execute strategy. That's exactly right. In fact, it comes in twice. I mentioned it's a seven-step process. In the very first step where you do a kind of an analysis of the current situation, obviously, you also do a lot of numbers. So how many customers do we have? How much repeat business? How many projects go over time? By how many percent? Blah, blah, blah. You do all this kind of numbers analysis, but a part of it is also what you mentioned, the cultural analysis. What is it that nobody is talking about, but it's the elephant in the room? What is that is driving us through life? What's our hidden mindset that nobody knows anymore? And once you have that, then in the execution phase, after you've created the strategic intent, the strategic indicators, how you're going to measure performance of the achievement of the future, then what are the strategic objectives? Who is the leadership? What are their accountabilities and roles and all that stuff? And then you actually get to culture. So you get to what could get in the way? How do we shoot ourselves in the foot consistently? And we make these amazing plans. But as Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast every single day, right? So yeah. you can have the best plan in the world. If you did not take care of the culture, you will just keep doing the same stuff that you did before. You will basically recreate the past. Yeah. So a very common thread through doing the project that might transform something, which indeed, most cases, having those projects around are part of the execution of your strategy through to any sort of um, for what is a strategy? It's simply a set of choices that what you're going to do and what you're not going to do, which will involve stopping things, starting things. If the culture's not right, you won't stop the things that you said you were going to stop, and you probably won't properly start the things you said you were going to start. Exactly. By the way, I think that's where the CFO has a tremendously important role. And I would say finance in general, because the CFO needs to know what's in the scope and what's out of the scope and the courage to say no to activities that might have been useful in the past, might have been productive, but now they're obsolete. 
and to draw that distinction. Because when you create the vision, when you say our strategic intent is, I don't know, if you were Nokia in 1995, strategic intent was put the internet in everybody's pocket, right? So that's, for example, a very wide strategic intent. And at the vision level, almost anything is possible. Beat Xerox or whatever the strategic intent is. But then at the strategy level, you don't have all the hours in the day and you don't have an unlimited budget. So you need to actually make choices. Like you said, a strategy is about making choices and it's about saying no. In our process, we don't just ask, what do you want or where do you want to be in five years? But also, what is it that is no longer useful for that? What is no longer matching that strategy, right? And the courage to say no to obsolete things is very important. And I think that's what the CFO must do. That's one of the things that the CFO is paid for, in my view. Yeah. And there you have a very interesting example. You said Nokia and put the internet in everybody's pocket. Well, who's got a Nokia phone these days? If you have, it's probably just about obsolete and will do very little. What yes. is internet in everybody's pocket? That would be Apple and the iPhone. Yes, exactly. To be fair, they do have customers in Africa. So Nokia is still a very good phone in Africa for low-cost countries. Yeah. But in terms of the Western markets, you're absolutely right. It's definitely now Apple and LG and whatever those phones are called. I have a Galaxy myself, full yeah. disclosure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So thinking about that executing strategy, you went into India. And you're in a, a very interesting area with lots and lots of change going on. Now, we're almost, when we're putting strategy together, assuming, oh, we're at status quo, there's no change going on, here's what we're going to do, here's our three-year plan. But increasingly, the world isn't like that. And we've seen even in Europe, COVID disrupted everything, war in Ukraine disrupted things. We've got things going on in the Middle East, increasingly blowing up there that are going to disrupt things again. All sorts of things are going on that says, hey, we're not in status quo. Things are changing fast and you've got to react. How do you deal with the strategy world when that's going on? My answer is strategy and action. So in my view, making a financial forecast over several years, I, I always have to laugh when I get business plans of startups. I'm now investing a lot, but right? so I, <laughs> I get all kinds of interesting ventures and private equity offerings. And I always have to laugh when they have multiple year forecasts, because I just know, as John Lennon said, life is what happens when you had other plans. So yeah. it's, it's just not going to work. And this was decades before what we call VUCA world today, VUCA being volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, right? So you're living in a world where there's very low visibility. You cannot control the future. There's disrupting people coming into your market, substitutes, new entrants in the market. You cannot really foresee the changes that will happen. So the question is, how can you build an organization that's very, I would say, agile or versatile? I know these are buzzwords, so I don't, I don't like them very much, but the way I call it is strategy and action. And I, actually, my best example, and I'm talking about this in the book, is Amazon, actually. Amazon has an amazing way to invent business models and disrupt industries. And then what I call a strategic organization. So it's, it's an organization that will invent its own future based on the future that it wants to build. So Amazon is not a shop, but it's also not just Amazon Web Services. And it's not just Alexa. And it's not just one thing. It's multiple business models that are disrupting different things. They have used books. They've got all kinds of things. And I'm not even saying they probably have AI 
I'm pretty sure they have a whole AI initiative, which will be rivaling OpenAI and Bard, et cetera. Um, Undoubtedly, in the minute that AI is properly put into that gadget whose name I shan't mention because she will want to intrude into our podcast conversation from the bookshelf, then (laughs) you're going to get some very powerful answers coming out of it that are going to revolutionize things. Exactly. And so the key becomes, can you be strategic rather than have a strategy? So the whole metaphor, the whole idea of a book or a slideshow of strategy is absolute in my view. It's a way of being. It's a way of standing in the future. And as a CFO or CEO, you have to stand in the future. It's very unfortunate that a lot of C-level executives are actually basically having no time for the future because they're running around like chickens. I don't mean to insult anybody, but according to statistics, only 10% of CEOs actually have the space to build the future because they're running from reception to meeting to staff meeting to their days are totally booked so they cannot stand in the future. So the first step is to actually take time out where you stand in the future. And then the next thing is you would launch what I call a catalytic project. It's a 100-day project where you don't have to build Rome in, in 100 days, but on a microcosm level, you want to basically make a dent, produce a breakthrough in performance in something. I'll give you the example again of, of that satellite company and aerospace company they noticed that they were going over budget for satellite builds. So a satellite takes about five years to build. They were going over by 100%, which means that if the ESA, European Space Agency, needed a satellite, they had to wait five years longer than they expected. You can imagine what that does to customer relations and to the loyalty of the customer. So they were basically jumping ship. They were going to the Indian Space Authority, et cetera, or going to the competition. And so we had a very simple project. Let's build the next satellite and get going over time or over budget, cut that to 0%, from 100% to 0% in 100 days. It's crazy. It's a crazy idea, but we did it. We failed, actually. To be honest, we failed. We cut it by 90% instead of 100%. So we had 110% instead of 200%. But that's 5.5 years instead of 10 years. So that was a very big... That is a mega shift. Unbelievable. And what we discovered was simply the thing that was the blockage was the communication between the British, the French, and the German engineers. They were just not talking. They had culture clashes. They called each other. Somebody would call on Friday afternoon and say, can you give me this by Monday morning? And the other guy said, I'm not going to do that. So he didn't call him back. And then they were pissed off, et cetera. We have all these human factors, and if you get those aligned, you can actually produce a breakthrough in 100 days. And then out of that breakthrough, you can basically reevaluate the strategy, revisit it, and see if you need to adjust anything. If the project succeeds, like in this case with the satellites, then you can obviously institutionalize that, standardize that breakthrough. If it fails, God forbid, you still learned that was not a good idea. But you didn't learn it from discussing it in a staff meeting or a board meeting. You learned that in the action, the laboratory of action showed you the proof. Execute things in 100-day phases. That's the bottom line. Don't really plan, I guess, much more than 100 days at a time. The way I would say it is, I'm not using the word planning. I would say, be very clear on your strategic intent in three or five years, because that's your anchor in the future. But the strategy has to be only 80% in the ballpark, okay? It doesn't have to be 100% done. And I'm saying this 
because I'm Swiss and Swiss people like perfection. And so we never get out of this planning paralysis or analysis. So maybe the Brits are different. You guys I can don't just think we're that much different. launch. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> yeah. But I like that. I mean, I must admit that I'd say it's three years in the future. For the reasons we talked about earlier, I think if anybody's got a crystal ball that can look five years in the future at the moment, then you know, they're very fortunate. Yes. Who would have said in 2020 that at the end of 2023, AI would be taking over everywhere? Nobody yep. would have said that. So equally, if you're sitting in 2024 now and you're saying what's going to be happening by 2029, well, you're looking way too far in the future. Nobody knows. Yeah, I think that's correct. Coming back, Thomas, you're saying 100 days. Why 100 days? Why not 90? Well, I think one of the purposes of the catalytic project is to break business as usual. And the quarter is a kind of a business as usual. And I'm aware that we're talking to the financial profession here. So the quarter is obviously a very entrenched kind of time frame. And all the shareholders are looking to the quarter. The market is looking to the quarter. All the reporting is set up around the quarter. I'm actually stealing this from you. I think you said this earlier, that you want to have a 100-day sale that actually breaks the business as yeah, usual of the quarter. Some listeners may be aware that I've got another podcast that I record with marketing friend Graham Arrowsmith called The Next 100 Days. And we'll talk about <laughs> literally anything to do with business and quite often things that are, are just personal in nature. And we always theme it around that if this is your problem, your circumstances, here's something you can do about it in the next 100 days. I guess the thing that I like about it, Thomas, particularly when I'm talking to finance leaders will automatically translate 90 days into a quarter. Oh, and the next quarter will start on the 1st of April. But when does 100 days start? You get this problem, you want to do something about it in 100 days. Well, day one of 100 days is today. Yes. That is absolutely right. And by the way, I have some tips that before we end this podcast, I would love to place. And you mentioned the 100 days. One tip is begin each day of those 100 days, not by opening your emails, not by talking to people. Begin each day with an accomplishment of size, like something substantial that is on the way to the 100-day goal, okay? So whatever your goal is, if your goal is to enter the Chinese market, then take every single day a major action and do not do anything else until that action has been accomplished. And you will actually see that the breakthrough can happen in 100 days. Yeah. I don't think actually that, that's a way of work that I've been adopting a little bit of late. I, I found a piece of AI software that played with my diary called reclaim.ai, which I'd recommend mm. to anybody who's listening. And it automatically drops time blocks in your diary. So I've got it dropping a time block and trying to reserve a time block called deep work that it sticks in as probably one of the first things that I do in the morning. And that deep work is about doing those things that are pretty significant around moving the business on. And stuff like running workshops, recording podcasts and so on, all of that generally happens after lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And in my case, it's actually writing. I discovered that if I don't write the first two hours every single morning and I have this absolutely sacrosanct in my agenda, I will never get to it. If I start the day by opening my emails, I'm already lost and it's already 2 p.m. before I say exactly. good morning. Yes. So I have it set up that I have my day 
I do my physical and spiritual exercises early in the morning, but then from 10 to 12, I will write. And unless there's some kind of a crisis, I will not be deterred from that. And that's how I've written and published 10 books. And I got three others on the way because, and I got my PhD within one year and all my colleagues took about five years to get their PhDs because they were sitting around in the computer lab. And I started every single day with writing. So yeah. it's very simple, but it works. The tip two is, <laughs> I call it displays. It's basically CFOs are used to having spreadsheets and having numbers displayed. But my assertion is if you're not accomplishing what you need to accomplish, it's not a function of that you're not committed. It's not a function that you're not disciplined. It's not a function that you got the wrong priorities or whatever. It's a function of displaying the work. In other words, whatever is around you, whatever is in your face has to be directly correlated with what you want to accomplish. And that could be numbers, okay? But nowadays, a lot of companies have other KPIs. You may have to have climate KPIs. You might have other things that you need to measure. And to have those be on a flip chart or in your face, on your screensaver, on your computer, to basically display your work. And I would say, I'd even include everything that's around you. How is your office set up? Is it set up for you to do the work that you want to do? For example, if you're only spending 1% on the future and 99% running around in the present, what could be the display that would pull you to create the future, to live in the future? Because as an executive, as a C-level, that's your job. You're paid to having conversations that will actually build a new future rather than extending the past, which yes. any manager can do. That's not leadership. Leadership and is standing in the future. Now, Thomas, as somebody who comes out of a, a kind of performance management background, enterprise performance management, I always have at the back of my mind that what gets measured gets done. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, oftentimes I do this in the strategy and action book. Oftentimes it's actually the wrong stuff that gets measured. In other words, we want to appeal to the younger generations. So the next generation should be part of our customers. The question would be, how do you display that? What do you need to display in order to have that be an outcome? Yeah. What do you need to display as an input variable, something that you look at every week or maybe even every day, so that you actually can expect the outcome? And I discovered that a lot of companies measure basically the stuff that they used to measure or they only measure profitability which is an outcome, it's an outcome measurement and it's a valid outcome measurement, but it may not give you the actions that you need to take on a daily basis to actually get that outcome. Indeed. So tip three. Well, one tip I've said already, which is it's focus, basically saying no to things. I actually think I said already, the, I said start each day with an accomplishment of size, not by opening the mail. Number two, be focused, have the courage to say no to activities that used to be useful, but now not. Number three is to use displays, to actually display the right indicators. And the fourth one is take out what I call the should in your work. So a lot of stuff we do that we should do, that we think we should do, that people demand of us, and actually to distinguish very clearly, I will do this and I won't do this other thing. And I would literally recommend every Friday, I do this every Friday, before I leave on Friday, I will set up my next week. I will schedule every single thing because whatever is not in my schedule will not get done. And then I will have the courage and it takes me courage because I'm somebody who likes to say yes to people. 
I don't like to disappoint. So I tend to say yes too often. And I think anybody who's a leader has too much on their plate or at least more on their plate that they can possibly manage. That's just how leadership works. So what I do every Friday is I, I basically say, these are the things that I will do and they live in time. And anything that is not in time, I will say no to, and I will alert the people that are affected. I will basically say, listen, I'm not going to do this next week, or I'm not going to do this ever. I actually have a list called my freedom list. The freedom list is on my phone. And it basically is a list of all the things that I will never do. And then once a month, I revisit that list and say, okay, maybe I will learn the piano. You know, why not? But I distinguish very clearly between what I will do, and then it needs to be in the calendar. And I'm saying, outlook, seeing some or I will not do it. Seeing some parallels there, Thomas, with some other podcast guests. Laura van der Kam, who, like yourself, is a serial author. But Laura tends to write about time management all the time. And when I interviewed Laura about some of her big principles, it was plan on Fridays. Always plan. Oh, really? Not a month. Wow. Okay. I should definitely connect with Laura. <laughs> and I'm thinking about another good friend of mine, Graham, and I have in- interviewed him several times on the Next 100 Days podcast, John Lamerton. John wrote a book called Routine Machine, but started by saying that he does what he wants, when he wants, if he wants, but then talks about how everything's in routines, has to be locked into the schedule. And John talks about scrapping the to-do list and the to-do list becomes a could-do list. (laughs) Yeah. Those are very similar principles, actually. Yeah, very good. Obviously, there's a lot more to the science of accomplishing and executing. And there's a whole course that I do, which is called Cockpit, which basically puts you back into the cockpit of your life. Rather than being a passenger or cargo, you actually are the driver of your life. And there are certain things that you can do, an infrastructure that will actually give you freedom, the freedom from should, for example, that if I only was a better person, maybe I would also accomplish this other thing. Freedom from should. I I can sense there's a whole other podcast in there talking about all of those things. You know what? Maybe we should do that. But basically the promise is freedom, power. And what I mean by power is not power over other people, but it's the power to basically the speed from which you move from idea to result. And then finally, peace of mind, which is something that those of us who are leaders, that's in very rare supply, right? Indeed it is. Thomas, thank you very much for being this week's guest on The Gross CFO Show. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure.